Hello, this is Pastor Matthew. I just want to take a moment personally to say thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. Our mission is to impact the valley and bless the nations with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We encourage you to go check out our website at crosslinkva.com. By doing so, you can learn all about the ministries of Crosslink and how we're involved in the community. Please know we're praying for you. God bless you. If you have your Bibles today, I want to ask you to take them and open them with me to Revelation chapter 3 for this morning's message. Over the last seven weeks now, we have been in a sermon series entitled, Can You Hear Me Now? In Revelation 2 and 3, we have these seven churches of Revelation. And every single one of these addresses from Christ ends with this statement. So he who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches In every context, Jesus gives words of instruction. At times, he gives words of correction and rebuke. At other times, he gives words of encouragement and comfort. But at the end of every letter, he pauses, and here's basically what he's saying. Do you really hear what I'm saying? Are you really receiving it, and are you going to respond to it? Here in Revelation chapter 3, we come to what I believe is likely the saddest of all the churches of Revelation. It seems interesting to me because last Sunday, we saw the church at Philadelphia that was fully committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus did not give them a single word of rebuke or correction because they were simply living out their lives faithfully and wholeheartedly for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sadly, when it comes to the church at Laodicea, we find no words of praise, no words of comfort or approval. Instead, what we find are words of rebuke and words of clear, direct instruction. Why? Because the church at Laodicea was like many churches today, even many Christians today. They were a complacent people. Today in Revelation chapter three, I wanna preach to you on the subject, the complacent church, and I wanna begin by asking us all a personal question, and that is this. Are you spiritually in your life Are you complacent? Are you complacent in your life when it comes to the things of God, when it comes to your relationship with him, when it comes to the things that he's called you to do? Are you living your life with complacency? The truth is is that it's difficult for us to answer that question because many times we would readily assume, well, wait a second, I'm here at 9.30 on a Sunday morning. There's a lot of other places I could be this morning. So, So no, 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 I'm not complacent. But the truth is, When we are in a place of spiritual complacency, we're usually the last person to realize it. The word complacent by definition literally means marked by self-satisfaction, especially when accompanied by unawareness of actual dangers or deficiencies. In other words, those who are living with complacency spiritually usually are unaware of it. They don't realize where they're really at, and they don't realize the dangerous position that they are in. Let me illustrate that for just a moment. Many of you, of course, living here in the valley, have seen some sheep along the way. But sheep are notorious for a condition that, frankly, can not only be scary, it can be life-threatening, and it is when a sheep becomes a cast sheep. Let me illustrate what happens. A sheep, of course, does not need as much sleep as we do. The average, sleep will, uh, average sheep will sleep about four to five hours a day. That's all. But they rest a lot. 
In fact, throughout the day, a sheep will graze and it will eat. And after it grazes, it will find a spot to lay down and rest. Oftentimes, once a sheep finds a certain spot that is comfortable to them, they continually go back to that same spot. It may be that they like a certain grass. It might be that they like a certain shade tree, but they'll go to that same spot where they will lay down, but there's a problem with that. As they go to that place that's comfortable and they keep going to it and they keep going to it, eventually they wear that grass down. Eventually that grass stops growing in that spot. Eventually what you will largely have is a bald spot of dirt and yet they're comfortable. They'll go back to it over and over and over and over again. But unbeknownst to them, as the terrain literally beneath their weight shifts and changes, it means that they have to lay in different positions. That sounds kind of funny, but it's true. And as they begin to lay in those positions, as they've eaten, if they lay there too long, gases in their stomach begin to build up, which is a beautiful, glamorous picture, right? But as the gases build up, here they are laying there. They've got a full belly. This is their comfortable spot. And they're laying here and they're laying here longer than they should be without even knowing it. The gases can build up to such a place that when they go to stand up, they are unable to do so. In fact, if they stay in that place without a shepherd, without someone coming to them to help them get back up on their feet and get them moving away, if they don't have that person literally to protect them from going back to that place, they will literally lay there and die. Why? Because in their repeated position of comfort, they come to a place of complacency to where they literally can't stand on their own. That is just a picture in some ways of what happens spiritually when we begin to be so focused on our comforts, our wants, our wishes, what's easy, what do we like, what are we comfortable with, and we give to that comfort so long and so repeatedly that eventually we become complacent and unaware of the dangers at hand. In Revelation chapter three, we see the complacent church, and I believe that Jesus gives both a sobering message and a sobering picture to much of the church in America today. If you're physically able, will you stand to your feet for the reading of God's word? What does Jesus say to the complacent Christian and the complacent church? Here's what he says. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, listen to this statement, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. And those whom I love, I reprove and I discipline. Therefore, be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit with me on my throne as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. And here's that ending again. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. 
We confess right now we need you. Give us eyes to see where we truly stand with you, where we've grown cold and where we've grown distant, where there's no relationship at all. I pray, God, that you would draw us to yourself. May we literally feel and hear you knocking on our heart's door today. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. God bless you, you may be seated. Laodicea, the complacent church. The city of Laodicea in ancient Asia Minor was a city of great notoriety. In fact, it was a city of extreme and abundant wealth in that day. It was abundant in wealth primarily because it was basically the banking mega center of the ancient world. So vast was their wealth that in AD 61, they experienced a tremendous earthquake that destroyed much of the city. As a result of that, the Roman government came in and offered exorbitant money to help them rebuild, but they were so wealthy in and of themselves, they refused the government aid and said, no, we can build it bigger and better ourselves, thank you very much. And so they did just that, a very wealthy city. Not only were they known for their banking center, but they were also known for their textile industry. Because of the black sheep, literal black sheep in the region, they were known for this black, glossy, rich wool. And as a result of that, they created a textile industry from which they made garments that they literally traded all throughout the ancient world. In addition to that, they were also known for their great medical school. So famous were some of the professors and the doctors, if you will, at this medical school, that their faces were on the coinage there in the community, quite incredible. They were primarily known for one thing, and that is they had developed an eye salve, like an ointment that had medicinal and healing properties that people could use for various ailments of their eyes. And years later, they did the same for your ear as well. They were known for their incredible school of medicine and the benefits that they derived from it. But one of the things that's very interesting about Laodicea in that ancient world is that the city had one glaring liability, and that is this. They had no natural source of water. Laodicea, Laodicea did not have a, a river right there running through the city. They didn't have some fresh water thing. So what they did is they depended upon outside water to be piped into the city. Very interesting. In that ancient world, they were about six miles away from the city of Colossae. Maybe you remember the letter to the church at Colossians. That is in the city of Colossae. Colossae was known for pure, cold drinking water that literally came down from a mountain there into that valley. In other words, Laodicea would have this cold water piped in from six miles away. Additionally from that, another six to eight miles to the west was a city known as Hierapolis. And Hierapolis was known for their natural hot springs. I don't know if you've ever been in one before, but several years ago, I went to Dominica in the Caribbean on a missions trip, and they were known for their natural hot springs. It was like God's hot tub, quite a gift from God, I will tell you, okay? Well, here they were literally in the middle of a place that was piping in cold mountain water and a place that was bringing in these, these, these natural hot springs. Right in the middle of cold and hot lays the city of Laodicea, which is an incredible background for what Jesus is about to say to this church. Four things I want you to see this morning about the complacent church. Number one, we see the dilemma in the church. The dilemma in the church. We all face dilemmas in life. Every single one of us individually and as a church, our life is not without some challenges along the way. But the dilemmas that are of most concern should be the spiritual dilemmas, the things that matter of eternity, the things beyond the outward appearances, the conditions and issues of the heart. 
Here, as Jesus begins to speak to the church of Laodicea, he addresses three primary dilemmas that every single one of us need to hear, every single one of us need to pause and examine our own life, and every single one of us need to be aware of and to be cautious of in our own life. What's the first dilemma? It is the dilemma of spiritual apathy. Spiritual apathy. The first part of the dilemma was that they were apathetic. They had grown, not merely cold, but they had grown to be a lukewarm people. In other words, they had once been hot for the Lord Jesus Christ, but they had since lost their passion, their hunger, their excitement, and their devotion to God. Reminds me of the illustration of the older couple that you've heard me talk about a hundred times before. They pulled up to the traffic light and the, the older lady looked over at the car next to her and she saw a younger couple sitting there and they were sitting so close they were practically in each other's lap. And as the older lady watched, she saw the young lady look at the young man and they began to kiss and the older lady was like, wow, that's amazing. And she looked across that row at her husband and she said, honey, why don't we do that anymore? Why aren't we that closer? Why don't you kiss me like that anymore? The wise old man looked across that long front row and he said, sweetheart, I ain't the one who moved. I ain't the one who moved. What he was saying loud and clear in that moment was, I'm not the one who's distanced myself. I'm not the one who's grown cold, so to speak. God is looking at the church at Laodicea and what he's saying to them is this, you've grown distant and you've grown cold. In the Bible, the Bible speaks of our heart for the Lord and our relationship with him in terms at times of temperature. Let me illustrate that. In Luke chapter 24, verse 32, it's described as a burning heart for the things of the Lord. In Matthew 24, verse 12, it is described as a cold heart towards the things of the Lord. Here in Revelation chapter three, we see now a lukewarm heart. A burning heart is passionate about God. A burning heart is wholeheartedly devoted and excited about God and that relationship with him. We might say of someone, man, that person is on fire for the Lord Jesus Christ. But a cold heart is the complete opposite of that. It's the person whose heart is hardened. They don't want anything to do with the things of God. They're not even thinking about things of God. And you bring it up to them, absolutely not. I don't want to hear it. But then there's a lukewarm heart. It's not hot. It's not cold, it's just somewhere in the middle of the road. It's indifferent. It's kind of here and there and everywhere, laissez-faire, mediocre, ho-hum, just going through life. Now we would hear these words of Jesus, there's hot and cold and lukewarm, and it would be easy for us to conclude, man, being cold, that's a bad deal. We don't, we don't wanna be cold toward the things of God. I mean, that would be hard-hearted and that would just be rejecting the things of God. But Jesus shockingly says something. I wish that you were hot or I wish that you were cold, but instead you were lukewarm. He's gonna say a lot of things about that here in just a moment, but what he's basically bringing them to is the reality that lukewarm Christians are in a dangerous place. Because we're not cold, we might look at people who are cold and say, well, at least I'm not like so-and-so. At least I'm not doing this. I mean, at least I'm going to church every now and then. I mean, at least I'm doing something right. We might look at our intentions. We might look at the wrong things of others and justify ourselves. We might even make excuses for our lack of being on fire for and passionate about the things of God and use that as a means to excuse where we really are. Those who are lukewarm are focused on the outward appearance, maybe their outward attendance, their outward actions, but inwardly, they're not really devoted to the Lord. 
Their love for Jesus has waned. It's grown cold. Their devotion is not so clear. Those who are lukewarm might profess Christ, but they have very little hunger for the things of Christ. They might do things to keep up appearances, but in their own heart, they don't genuinely have an affection for Jesus Christ that leads to a transformation in their actions and in their life. The Apostle Paul was speaking to Titus in Titus chapter two, verse 14, and he reminds us about what Jesus has done for us and our response to that. Listen to what he says. Jesus gave himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Remember what Jesus did. He died for you to forgive you and to save you and to purify you so that we might belong to him, but it brings a result, doesn't it? So that we might be zealous for good works. In other words, if we genuinely love Jesus and genuinely have a devotion to him and genuinely are passionate about him, it's going to lead us not only to, to serve him and to love him, but it's going to lead us to be zealous about those things, passionate about those things, on fire for him, if you will. There's a spiritual apathy that had creeped into the church at Laodicea, but secondly, we see a spiritual arrogance. It's one thing to be apathetic and come to this place of being lukewarm where you're not really hot or cold. You're just somewhere in the middle, kind of wishy-washy, if you will. But it's another thing to become spiritually arrogant. Listen to what they say in verse 17. They say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing. Think of that statement for just a moment. I am rich and I have become wealthy. In other words, as a Christian and as a body of believers, they had become completely independent. After all, money can buy anything. We got wealth and we got riches. Look at our banking industry. Look at our textile industry. Look at all these wonderful things going for us. We got everything we need. And if we don't have it, we can hire somebody. We can buy this gadget. We can buy this technology. We can purchase this experience. We can do all these things. Look how blessed we are. In fact, they looked at their wealth and their riches as God's approval for how they were living. This focus on their riches, frankly, led them to the same place as the fool that Jesus spoke of in Luke chapter 12, who trusted in his riches and thought he had all the security in the world. Listen to what Jesus concludes in verse 15. Beware and be on your guard against every form of greed, for not even when one has an abundance does his life consist of his possessions. Proverbs eleven twenty eight says it this way. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like the green leaf. Please understand, Jesus is not condemning riches. What he's condemning is our trust of riches. Oh man, we've got what we need. We're secure for years to come. We don't have need for anything, which leads into that statement. We're rich, we're wealthy, and we have need of nothing. Please understand, when they had need of nothing, what they're largely saying is, we've got everything we need. Jesus, we'll take it from here. Like a child who needs the assistance of his father. And then the father begins to pitch in and help. And then the child says, no, dad, I got it. I'm good from here. Like a, like a, like a, like a, like a, like a temper tantrum of a toddler saying, no, leave me alone. I can do it all by myself. This church was at a place where they had convinced themselves they were good enough. They had enough. All they needed was themselves. Can I remind us loud and clear today? We are nothing without Jesus Christ. 
We are nothing without Jesus Christ. A church can have a big building with a big budget, a big base, a big volunteer team, and a big staff to facilitate ministry, but it will never outgrow its greatest need for its greatest need is always Jesus Christ. I have seen way too many churches, and at one time was even a part of a church, were beginning to build and beginning to expand. And as soon as the building was completed, they entered in that building. And when they entered that building, they had this attitude of accomplishment, this attitude of arrival, this attitude of, 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 of really of arrogance began to creep in behind the scenes. And eventually they began to live like they'd arrived. We can do this. We can do this in the community. We can buy this software. We can make this thing happen. And somewhere along the way, they began to realize that they were no longer dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ. Can I remind us as a church, our greatest need is and always will be the Lord Jesus Christ and we can do nothing without him. Listen to what Jesus said in John 15. Abide in me and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine. So neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. Listen to this statement. For apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Businessman, apart from Christ, you can do? Doctor, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Stay at home, mom, apart from Christ, you can do nothing. Believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, why do we keep living our life thinking we can do whatever we want? We've got the gifts, we've got the skills, we've got the energy, we've got the resources. Apart from Christ, nothing of eternal significance happens. The reality is for us today, we must recognize that our need is Jesus if we have him, he will work and bring fruit. But if we don't have him, then it doesn't matter what we do. We're just playing games and wasting time. Spiritual arrogance. The third problem we see in the church, this dilemma, is what we'll call spiritual atrophy. Spiritual atrophy. The word atrophy means a gradual decline in effectiveness or vigor due to underuse or neglect. I was talking with a gentleman recently who had been in a full arm cast he thought it was going to be about three or four weeks. It ended up being three or four months. And by the time he got his arm out of that arm cast, he could not stretch his arm all the way. He had to go through a week of, of some pretty excruciating uh, challenges, and then he went through a month of physical therapy, and now he's trying to lift weights, like 10 and 15 pounds, trying to get his one arm to be as strong as his other. Why? Because in the time that he was in that cast, his arm and the muscles began to atrophy. By misuse, they were literally decreasing in what they could do. Here, Jesus speaks to this church and he begins to speak of atrophy that they were experiencing in one primary way, and that is this, it was found in their vision. Because they weren't close to the Lord, oh, they're still showing up on Sunday morning, they're still going through the motions, they're still outwardly kind of keeping appearances, if you will, but because they're not really close to the Lord, they no longer have a spiritual vision to see him or to see themselves as they really were. I'm reminded in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses five through seven, God gives us a list of things to make sure that we're growing and that we're adding in in our faith. And here's what he says in verses eight through nine. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. But he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted. The church here in Laodicea was just that. 
They looked at themselves and honestly concluded, we're rich, we're wealthy, we're successful, we're everything going for us, we don't have need for anything. But then Jesus says, but I say to you, you have completely lost your vision. You don't see where you really stand. You're blind to the things of me. Which brings me to a second point this morning. I want you to see the discernment of the Lord. The discernment of the Lord. I want to remind us today that it doesn't matter what we say about ourselves. Doesn't matter how good our appearance is. It doesn't matter how many attaboys and applauds we get by other people. What matters is what the Lord Jesus Christ says of us. He is not deceived by the outward appearance. In fact, he's not even interested in it. He's looking at the heart. Hebrews chapter four reminds us in verse 13 that there is no creature hidden from his sight, but all things are open and laid bare to the eyes of him with whom we have to do. There's nothing in our life right now, including in our heart, that he does not know. Jesus comes to this church that is so sure of themselves with some very sobering words. I want you to see the discernment of the Lord. Three things about this. First, I want you to see the description of Jesus. Now remember, every time Jesus addresses one of these churches, he presents himself in a personal description, in a personal way that would relate to them. How does he describe himself? Verse 14. He describes himself as the amen, the faithful and the true witness, and the beginning of creation. What is the amen? The word amen literally means the truth. Maybe you remember the gospel accounts where Jesus will say something and he'll say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say to you, that same word for verily or for truly is the word here for I am the amen. What Jesus is saying is this, I am the truth. I do not lie and I will not lie. What I'm about to say is fully truth because I am the truth. And I'm the faithful and true witness. What does a witness do? A witness tells simply what he's seen and heard. In other words, Jesus is not bringing an empty claim or accusation Jesus has been watching. He's been seeing. He knows what's been going on behind closed doors. He knows the very thoughts and intentions of the heart and of the mind. He knows it all. He's the faithful and true witness who's about to speak. And he is the beginning of creation, which literally means he's the source and he's the origin of all creation. That reality would have led those believers there at Laodicea to go back to the truth that was taught in Colossians chapter one. In Colossians, the Bible tells us that Paul ends that letter in Colossians chapter four and he says, now listen, go take this letter and read it to the church at Laodicea, just six miles away. Well, one of the statements that Paul makes in Colossians is this about Christ and his creation. The Bible says this in Colossians 1, for by him, Jesus, all things were created, both in heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions, rulers or authorities. Listen to this. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things and in him all things hold together. In other words, when Jesus says, I am the beginning of creation, what he's saying is, listen, I am the source and I am the origin of all creation. You were created by me, you were created for me, and it is only through me that you were even held together is what he's saying to the believers in Laodicea. Can you imagine the scene? As the church at Laodicea gets word, Jesus has sent us a message there's a letter that is arrived by the hand of the beloved disciple John. Everybody come together. We gotta hear. What does Jesus wanna say to us? He has a message for us to hear. 
I imagine the believers were as excited to gather together this morning as we are here today. Though they might have arrived on time. (laughs) Y'all all all right? Just asking, just making sure. Church is all gathered together. Everybody's excited. We've got a message. John's giving us a message. This is from Jesus. Jesus is the amen, hallelujah. He's the faithful and true witness. That's right. He's the source of all creation. Absolutely. What does Jesus have to say to us? And then Jesus speaks in verse 16. A drop the mic moment. Because you are lukewarm and either hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Needless to say, this is not the message they wanted to hear. Needless to say, this is not the message they thought they would hear. But it is indeed the message they needed to hear. I say, well, what in the world does that mean? I will spit you or I will spew you out of my mouth. Can, can, can I just be grotesque for just a moment? I know it sounds like middle school humor, but let me just tell you the truth. What Jesus is saying is this. When I see your lukewarm spiritual condition, it makes me want to vomit. I'm disgusted by it. Notice his disgust. Uh, Maybe when you read that response, you are as surprised as I am. Jesus looks at those who, who are outwardly going through the motions, having this outward appearance. Hey, we're rich, we're wealthy, we got need of nothing. And he looks at where they're truly cold spiritually. They're just kind of indifferent in the middle, a laissez-faire, mediocre, ho-hum. They're not really on fire for him anymore. And here's what he says, it makes me sick. Surely we can relate. Surely we've all had something in our mouth before that just was disgusting that we wanted to get rid of Immediately. Maybe even as you've, as you've had a memory of some bad experience or bad situation, even when that sparks your mind, there's just something within it, just, ugh, just ugh, you just wanted to be done with. That's where Jesus is with them. Now, we might look at that and say, well, man, I, I'm surprised by that. After all, there's other ways that Jesus responded in the Gospels. When Jesus saw Jerusalem, And as he considered how they had rejected the prophets and how God was giving opportunities and grace, but they continued to rebel against him, the Bible says that Jesus wept over Jerusalem. Maybe that would be an appropriate response. Or maybe we would even think of righteous indignation. I mean, after all, when Jesus was going to the temple that day and he saw the way that the Pharisees were using God's house for their own selfish agenda, they were taking advantage of the poor and they were manipulating people and they were using it as a means to to build their own kingdom, basically. Jesus walks in, he throws over the tables, he rebukes them, and then he says, you have made my father's house, which was meant to be a house of prayer for all people. You've made it a den of thieves. I mean, just, just cleaning the house. I love that passage of scripture. Maybe that would be an appropriate response. But here Jesus says, I'm sickened by it. Whether we like it or not, want to accept it or not, the truth is that God is repulsed and sickened of people who profess him yet do not live wholeheartedly for him. That's a question, doesn't it? Are we really living our life wholeheartedly for Jesus? Are we passionate about our relationship with him? Are we purposeful about the relationship that we have, the time that we spend, the way that we love him, the way that we worship him? Is it just what we do on Sundays or is it real? Is it just what we do on the stage when we think other people are watching and looking or is it what we do in private? 
The disgust of Jesus is clear. And third, I want you to see the diagnosis of Jesus. Remember what they said of themselves as, oh man, we're, we're rich, we are wealthy, and we got need of nothing. But notice what Jesus concludes in verse 17. You do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. Now remember, I said to you earlier that those who are complacent, one of the challenges is they're unaware of it. They thought they were fine. <laughs> we're still worshiping Jesus on Sundays. Look at our bank account. Look at our building. Look at all these signs of success. I mean, the whole world's looking at us. Look at what we've been able to accomplish and do. But Jesus said their diagnosis was severe. Remember, Jesus wasn't looking at the outward physical appearance. He was looking at the posture of the heart and their spiritual condition. He said, you're wretched, which literally means you are helpless. You think you have everything? You can do it all on your own? Spiritually, I'm saying to you, you are helpless. Jesus said you are miserable. Oh, they didn't think so. We're, we're good. I mean, look at all that we've amassed. Look at our kingdom. Look at our bank account. Look at all these things we've got. We're so happy. It's awesome. I'm so excited about it. But Jesus says, spiritually, they had nothing that truly brought them joy. There's a difference in the fleeting emotions of happiness and true joy. Not only were they wretched and miserable, oh, here's a sobering statement. They were poor. <laughs> they were the richest, one of the richest churches in the richest city of ancient Asia Minor, and yet Jesus says, spiritually speaking, you have nothing of eternal significance within you. You're poor. And they were blind. What a picture. Yeah, you got the medical school. Yeah, sure. You've got the eye salve that everybody's coming for. Yeah, it's got healing properties. Yeah, absolutely. You've got that, but you got no vision. You can't really see me. You don't even see where I'm at in the context of this relationship. You can't see yourself as you really are. You're spiritually blind. And you are naked. People who boasted in these incredible black sheep and the wool that they produced and their textile industry and all the garments that they made. Spiritually, what Jesus is showing them is that they were absolutely naked. Warren Wiersbe concludes it best. They were living in a fool's paradise, proud of a church that was about to be rejected. Let me ask you a question. I don't want you to answer out loud. Can you identify with that today? Is that what the Lord Jesus Christ is saying to you today? Is that what he's saying to us as a church today? I want you to see the third thing this morning, that is the directions of the Lord. If you're still with me this morning, would you say, oh me. Oh, me. The directions of the Lord. I, I don't know that we could see a more powerful uh, word of rejection and word of disgust than what Jesus has already spoken makes me sick. I want to spew you out of my mouth. It would be easy for us to conclude that Jesus is like us. This must mean that he's going to write them off. This just means that Jesus is done with them. This must mean that there's no hope for them. What a horrible place to be. But I want to remind you that the Lord Jesus Christ is patient. He is gracious. 
and he desires that we would have relationship with him. And we see that in the directions that Jesus gives in verses 18 through 19. Listen to the words Jesus says, I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve, interestingly, to anoint your eyes so that you may see. At the end of verse 19, therefore be zealous and repent. Jesus gives two words of direction and instruction, but please understand in them is an invitation. What are they? Number one, the direction is this. We must rely on Jesus. We must rely on Jesus. Church, you're dependent upon your wealth. You're dependent upon the false security that you have in your pocketbook. But I'm telling you, you've got to come to me to buy, buy gold that's been refined by fire. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, the riches you need and the resources you need to rely upon do not come of this earth. They come from me. That's what he's saying. I'm saying to you that you've been dependent upon this famous eye salve to bring healing to your eyes, but I'm telling you the only way that your sight spiritually, your eyes can be open, your vision can be restored is by coming to me. You're focused on all of this clothing of these beautiful garments you're making and how you look on the outside, but I'm telling you spiritually you're naked. What you need is this. You need white robes of my righteousness to clothe you and to cleanse you and to cover you. That's what you need. You need me. Friend, I want to remind you, until we realize our greatest need is Jesus, we will be just like the miserable, blind, naked, and hopeless. When we realize our need is Jesus, we find in him all that we need. We must rely on the Lord. And secondly, we must repent of sin. Therefore, be zealous, he says, and repent. We've seen it repeatedly in these passages of scripture. What does the word repent mean? It literally means a change of mind and a turning around. It means that we were going our direction. In this case, they were focused on themselves. They were secure in their wealth. They were living by their own pleasure, if you will. And what Jesus is saying is this, this. He's saying, turn from your sin and turn to me. Be zealous and repent. Turn from your sin, turn from your ways, turn from these things and repent and turn back to me. And guess what happens when we repent? It's when we repent that we experience restoration of relationship and the joy that comes from that. Acts 3.19, therefore repent and return so that your sins may be wiped away in order that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Are you complacent? Continually defeated by sin? You grown cold in your love for the Lord and your time with him? You grown cold towards the things of God? Repent. Rely upon him. Which finally brings us to the desire of the Lord. I've already alluded to it, haven't I? What is it that the Lord Jesus Christ desired for the church at Laodicea? And what is it that he desires of and for us? It's very simple, isn't it? Verse 20. Therefore, I stand at the door and I knock, and if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. I don't know that there's a more sobering image in all the New Testament than a church that is so busy going through the motions, so self-confident of themselves that they become complacent, that they don't even realize along the way 
They have pushed Jesus outside. Where is Jesus? Revelation 3.20. He's standing at the door and he's knocking. Why? Because his desire is to be close. His desire is to be in right relationship. His desire is to be in close fellowship. But because of their complacency, they've pushed him aside. Let me ask you a question this morning. Do you have a close relationship with Jesus? Or would it be said in your life, somewhere along the way, you pushed him aside? If he's been pushed aside, can I tell you where he's at today? He's knocking. If anyone will come and open, I will come in and I will sup with him is the King James word, which means I will dine with him and have fellowship with him. Years ago, a guy by the name of Holman Hunt, an artist, painted his depiction of this scene as Jesus stands outside the door and he knocks. Today, that painting is on display at St. Paul's Cathedral in London. When the painting was put on display, a group of students were brought through the cathedral to examine and identify various artist renditions for various purposes. And many of the artists that day were there to explain their work. The students eventually made their way to this painting by Holman Hunt on Jesus knocking at the door. Mr. Hunt was there that day, so the students began to ask questions and they complimented the painting. They were amazed by the attention to detail. They were amazed by the expression of, of grief on the face of Jesus. And Finally, one of the students spoke up and said, Mr. Hunt, if I might object to something, he says, uh, the painting's beautiful, you've done a wonderful job, but there's something missing in your painting. What do you mean there's something missing? He said, there's something of detail that's wrong in the picture. Mr. Hunt asked the question, well, what would it be? He saw Mr. Hunt, it's very simple. Jesus is standing outside the door, but there is no handle. There's no way for him to open the door. He's just there at the door standing with it shut in his face. There's no handle for him to open. To which Mr. Hunt answered and responded and said, oh, sir, that is no mistake. The handle's there, but it's on the inside. And what Mr. Hunt was saying loud and clear was, Jesus is there knocking, but the person on the other side has to open and say yes. And it's still the same today. Jesus knocks at the door of our hearts and our lives and even of the church. We must be willing to open. My question is this, will you? You don't have to be cold. You don't have to be complacent. You can be in right relationship with Jesus, walking in step and in harmony with him, but you gotta say yes. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for the reminder of your word that we need you. Lord, all of us like sheep are prone to wander and to stray. Father, forgive us for the times that we find our security and fulfillment and perhaps even our identity and how we're seen by others. Our title, our position, our, 
our wit, our wealth, our influence, our whatever. Lord, the reality is we are nothing without you. And we can do nothing without you. So God, I pray today that we would humble ourselves before you, that we would repent of our sin and we would rely fully upon you, Jesus. Have your way in our hearts and lives, I pray, for your glory and your namesake. Thank you so much for taking time to listen to this podcast. We encourage you to come and join us right here on our campus. We're located right next to the county fairgrounds here in Harrisonburg, Virginia. If you have any questions about the church, any questions about the message, feel free to email us or call us and let us know. And we look forward to seeing you soon. God bless you.